Hey, how's it going? This is Lizzie just dropping in to say that the following episode on identity is actually the second of three episodes on this topic. Hannah and I recorded them all at once as one long conversation, but made the call that it was too long to share as one episode, so we've split it up. If you haven't listened to the first identity instalment, then please go back to the episode dated the 18th of January, which is also my birthday, and listen to that episode before getting stuck into this one. Then look out for Identity 3 coming up on the 15th of February. In this moment of us hearing each other, we're not compatible. Or there's a moment of incompatibility within the stories that we're sharing because we've never heard the story from where you've heard it. and You've seen it and you're shaping it. And oh my word, what do we do in this moment? What is, what's up for grabs? Hey, we're Eggshells, the podcast exploring disagreement and how to do it better. We ask how we can make difficult conversations easier to have by exploring solutions to the challenges we all face when having them. We are going to talk a bit about non-conformist behaviour. Fair warning, we're going to have a few more controversial terms turning up here. Strap in. I think identity politics has also meant that society at large has become a lot more political. And you see that especially in Gen Z, people who grew up with the internet. Younger generations are much more vocal in their political views. The obvious thing would be wokeness, right? And the fact that wokeness, which is in theory a political movement, is actually a social movement which is defined by a generation, by generational boundaries. And it's part of being that age. You know, you have all these views. Like wokeness, all it means is you're awakened to different inequalities in the society. You understand that things aren't as simple as they seem. And yet it's both great for conversation, it's great for lobbying, all these different things, for example on trans rights, wokeness, trans rights, hugely intertwined. Twitter lends itself to an inverted commas cancel culture if people don't agree with those things. And so cancel culture Mm -hmm. as a thing has come from wokeness, which has come from the politicization of society, right? But at the same time, that term is also, thanks to these different chains of events, something people fear. Because, you know, if you don't agree or don't conform to everything that this very vague, ambiguous band stands for, if you're in that generation or any generation, you suddenly become public enemy number one. And that is because everyone is political, but no one knows what it means. All they know is they identify with this one term. And that term is an identity that we all have to subscribe to on every single level. So that's the sort of contradictions, I think, of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I just think that, again, she just lays it out so clearly. I think she's there talking about critical thought. Yes. And she's talking about making sure that you are aware of everything that the identity that you're subscribing to sort of gives you in terms of automatic values and that you make decisions about whether or not you ascribe to those values. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That is especially difficult on the internet some of the time, especially Mm -hmm. when our egos get in the way and we want to present in a certain way and we think that that makes sense, especially relating to 
wokeness and cancel culture, both yeah. of which she mentioned. Now, I will go on to say things about both of those terms. Um, but yeah, I just want to take a minute to think about what she said in terms of society becoming more political. Yeah. Because I think that is a fair point in the sense that identity politics automatically, and as we said, we are allowed to choose what values we have as individuals. And we don't have to have a set of values just because someone looks at us and goes, oh, you belong in that identity group, so therefore you should have their values. But it is a really tempting thing to do a lot of the time. Yeah. It's a really easy thing to do. And she gave the example of, of Gen Z people who also are, well, they're more politically active generally, but she's actually grouping them as an identity group in this example, isn't she? Yeah. Um, And then associating them with terms like woke and so if you're not woke depending on what generation you are that puts more or less pressure on you yeah and therefore depending on what generations are in power in any given sphere that puts more or less emphasis on wokeness yeah should we talk a bit about wokeness let's touch on it yeah so i just have a couple of things to say yeah so nushi already defined wokeness but i'm going to repeat her definition what she said was all it means is that you're awakened to different inequalities in society. You understand that things aren't as simple as they seem. That doesn't sound too controversial to me, personally. Okay, three things about wokeness. The term woke is traced to an essay called, well, this is a sh the shortened version of a, a longer title, If You're Woke, You Dig It, by African-American novelist William Melvin Kelly. The essay was published in the New York Times in 1962. If you're woke, you dig it. The hashtag stay woke then later became a catchphrase of the new Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. It relates directly to my second point. So the essay, William Melvin Kelly's essay, it's about linguistic idioms of black people being adopted by white people. And it reflects on the way that different terms are adopted and they change meaning. And it's talking about how language can be really fluid. Yeah. And Kelly himself, a 24-year-old black man at the time he's writing this essay, um, black man's rest life, but 24 at the time, you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he can't keep up with the rate at which his language is changing and evolving and being uh, taken and repurposed for white use. So therefore he's using the term woke in the title of his, his essay the term woke to him is very much like current. Yes. You know, very much like on the pulse. But also, crucially, it is directly related to having an in-depth understanding of black culture. That's the term's origin. I'm not really trying to make a point more than just to say that this is a word that well has been appropriated but originated in black culture. Yes, and I think that that is an interesting point because I have had almost exactly this conversation about the word woke with really? a couple of friends of mine. Really? Where my friend Abigail, basically, we were talking about white people using the word woke. <laughs> right. And she was like, well, yeah, because it originally comes from black culture and white people have come along <laughs> just adopted it. Yeah. And maybe not really understanding what it actually means or, or the origins of it yeah basically and I've noticed that because I have heard people in my life of older generations 
using the word woke in this kind of ironic, like they don't really know what it means, but they say things like, oh, all these woke people, you know, and it's infuriating. I have to say, I didn't know previous to the conversation I had with my friends that it had come from black culture. I didn't know until I did the research for this episode. Which says a lot anyway, doesn't it? The fact that we didn't know that. And like, it probably started that conversation coming from us talking about, I can't really remember, but I think I was saying something like, oh, I don't really like the word woke. I find it just gets thrown around and people use it in a really, almost taking a piss kind of a way sometimes. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And well, yeah, of course it does. (laughs) Because it's just a load of people using a word they don't really understand. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But having even just that little bit more context Mm -hmm. and having had that conversation with your friend like do you feel better or worse or the same about using it I feel definitely better but I guess I would use the word more consciously now yes in a conversation yeah not that it's a word I use loads anyway yeah I'm not walking around going I identify as a woke person (laughs) I mean No one should really be doing that. Actually, I remember someone's mum said about me, I think, to my friend, oh, Hannah, she's she's looking really woke at the moment right now. What does that even mean? And do you know what's even funnier about that? Is I think I remember I was dressed in black jeans and a black turtleneck. And I think what she actually meant was she looks like an actor. (laughs) do you know what that's interesting okay yes you said black jeans and a black turtleneck yeah so kelly's essay opens with an example of he's riding the subway and i'm going to misquote the particulars of this but he's riding the subway in new york city and he sees that there's an advert that's written in what it says is 28 different languages and number 18 or something has the phrase dig it in it and that language is attributed to it says beatnik right so beatnik culture is a largely white culture i understand to have been around the 1940s okay and beatniks wore turtlenecks and and like those those hats flat beret kind of hats you know can you picture a beatnik sort of person yeah so So i'm a beatnik is a beatnik (laughs) (laughs) and that's the group that he's talking about as having appropriated black language. Yeah. Well, I mean, as Kelly says in the article, I'm actually quoting the week. I'll put this in the show. This show notes are going to be really heavy. One of the arguments that Kelly makes in his 1962 essay was that once words used to define certain aspects of blackness are adopted by the white mainstream, they lose their value. Yeah. Which is pretty much what we're saying. Yeah. So y'all can do with that what you what you like. Yeah. Any more thoughts on woke? No, I think I'm done for now. Should we talk about cancel culture? Yes. What a fun afternoon. <laughs> Love that phrase, cancel culture. Yeah? How do you feel about it? <laughs> I don't feel good. <laughs> because my experience of it is... Hilarious. Do you know what? I'm not going to get ahead of myself because I think you should make some points about cancel culture. No, I kind of want to know what your experience of it is. Um, my experience of it is certain generations of people are worried about getting cancelled yes and I find that annoying why do you find it annoying? because I'm like well 
if you're worried about getting cancelled, then what are you doing? <laughs> That's interesting. Are you not worried about getting cancelled? I mean, you're, no offence, you're not quite high profile. <laughs> but you might be. You I'm might not, say something really stupid. Yeah. I do, I worry about saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. But I really hope that I try to articulate myself, even if I fluff it up quite a lot of the time, to to make it clear that I'm not, trying to make any wildly controversial statements that I know will upset people. Of course. And maybe what I'm really saying is the people I have heard voice concern about cancel culture, it more comes from a place of like, it's attacking their identity. Mm. They've lived a certain way for a certain amount of years and now that's being attacked and they're wrong. And so therefore they're a bad person. Right. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. So, so just to separate slightly, what you're not saying is those people were cancelled because they're bad people and I try and be a good person so I won't yeah. be cancelled because I think we can accept that like becoming homeless, anyone can be cancelled. Absolutely. And what you are saying is that people associate cancel culture or people feel cancel culture perhaps as in a direct attack on their identity, yeah. on their, as they perceive it, freedom of speech. Yeah. And that, therefore, they don't think they should be, quote unquote, cancelled yeah. just for speaking their minds. Yeah. Or they feel that they no longer can speak their minds. Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I found this really great article on a website called verywellmind.com. Again, show notes. Just don't just spend the whole time in the show notes. Don't even listen to this episode. Um, <laughs> please do go read it because I found it very helpful. If you're feeling overwhelmed by the term cancel culture and not really sure how to tread around it, mm-hmm. I thought it was really helpful. Here are some main useful things that it says about cancel culture. It says, cancel culture allows marginalized people to seek accountability where the justice system fails. So if the justice system wasn't failing, we wouldn't need cancel culture. Much like if the system was serving everybody, we wouldn't need identity politics. Yeah. Okay, that's point number one. The term cancel culture originated from a few public figures like Wesley Snipes and Cisco Rosado. They were talking about it in terms of quote unquote canceling their girlfriends or their ex-girlfriends. It was used in a very derogatory sexist way saying stuff like, oh, I'm canceling that girl and getting another one. Right. Treating women like a commodity. So it didn't come from a super cool place. But from there, it was then mainly used by black users of Twitter as a way to joke or show lighthearted disapproval for a person's actions. So again, something that comes from black culture that we are now using in the white mainstream. That is the third thing. That's the third thing. Let's just leave that there, I yeah. think. Okay, so call out culture versus cancel culture for me this is a really vital distinction i'm just going to quote directly from the very well mind article these terms are often used interchangeably but there is a difference call out culture is about calling attention to someone's wrongdoing and giving them a chance to learn cancel culture does not give the person the chance to learn from their mistake instead the person is immediately labeled as bad so if, like Hannah, you're confused about how you feel about cancel culture, or maybe you come across someone who says something like, oh, you just can't say anything these days, you know, 
why can't I say how I feel my identity is being threatened? I would say, think about how you feel about cancel culture versus how you feel about call out culture. Yeah. What do you think? Is that distinction helpful at all for what you were saying before? Definitely. Yeah. In what way? Because I think it's important to call stuff out that can be, can affect you. If someone is saying something that is having an emotional effect on you or really like... Well, this article calls it wrongdoing. Wrongdoing. And that's quite an emotionally charged term. Yeah. But just for the sake of argument, let's say it's wrongdoing. And then it's just giving them a chance to learn. Yeah. So it is, I think, if you're calling someone out for their wrongdoing, (laughs) but you're saying okay, I don't agree with that, that's wrong. Here's why. That is, again, giving space for the person who's done the wrongdoing thing to think about what they've done or said and then learn from it, rectify it maybe, create peace, move forward, all of those positive things. Everyone's happy. With cancel culture, well, I mean... They've kind of, I don't need to explain it. They've explained it. Like, But the difference is that people think they're being cancelled when they're being called out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and sometimes people are cancelled and I personally, I wouldn't want to be cancelled. I would not want to be cancelled either. I I don't want to, I I don't want to make a more general statement than that than just my own personal opinion about what I wouldn't want to happen to me. Yeah. But I would like to be called out. Yes, yeah. All right, cool. So we've thought a bit about those terms. Do you have anything else to say to what Nish... I can't remember what Nishi said now. <laughs> uh, no, no, I think we should leave it there for yeah. the listeners to think about how they feel about all of those things. Yeah, super agree. All right. Back to Ashley. So now we're going to pivot slightly to talking about personal identity. So okay. we have been pretty much talking about external representations of your identity surface level superficial representations but what about your created identities again we have touched on this by alluding to individual identities that might occur within groups that we try and put people in but i've created my whole own identity right i'm a performer i'm a pole dancer i'm a podcaster i live cross-continentally and uh i read a lot of tony morrison and have read even more of jacqueline wilson (laughs) Um, so that's you know that's an identity that over my life I've been relatively in control of creating. Yeah, yeah. Who are you, Hannah? I'm an actor. I'm okay. a singer. <laughs> I also read a lot of books. I also I'm learning to play the piano. You know, sweet. Exactly, exactly. So this is stuff that that's your identity. Yeah. As, as I'm you cultivating that. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. have cultivated that. Yeah. Sweet. Exactly. So that's that's our created versus our superficial identity. There are parts of our created identity that we're in control of, those things that we just mentioned. There are parts that we aren't in control of. Mm -hmm. And that's what Ashley's going to talk about here. Ashley identifies as a God-bothering feminist mother of two, an unschooly home educator, a trainee therapist, and a serial houseplant killer. Oh, I love her. (laughs) I'm not inviting her over to look after my houseplants while I'm on holiday, though. (laughs) No, no. The messaging we receive as children is the foundation block for those senses that we grow up with of 
what we need to make our world safe and to make ourselves secure. And so I wonder whether those different dysfunctional expressions of conflict are perhaps built on that middle layer of those internal schemas. So whether the very aggressive, very bullish, unable to listen to anybody else's perspective, conflictor, I wonder what they are protecting. I wonder which of their let's go with a person-centred paradigm there, what issue of their conditions of worth are being threatened by this? This thing that they're fighting so hard over, this principle, what is that actually protecting? Because it's probably not about the issue, that, that really kind of voracious, hot, strong desire to defend a position. Is it really about this thing? Because often when people struggle to give way in conflict, you think, hey, you can't possibly be this angry about this principle. You can't possibly be really this angry about this politician or, you know, this bit of religion or, you know. And so that, for me, would make me think, what's this actually about? What's this challenging? Is this challenging something really core about someone's sense of security? And similarly, in someone who just feels unable to engage with conflict, wants to be kind of mousy, doesn't want their voice to be heard. What would it mean for my voice to be heard? What would it mean to take that risk and let a perspective out there to risk challenging someone, to risk making somebody angry? I almost think I almost think that in what? <laughs> well, what were you gonna say? I wasn't gonna say anything, <laughs> Lizzie started talking and then looked at me and thought I was gonna say I something. Thought you were gonna say and something. then and then we just had this we do this in person so that this doesn't happen yeah i know so it could be in sync kind of we, we we but maybe sometimes we fuck it up and that's okay because we're human oh okay cool thanks sounds good we're only human that's not a song um i think that we could use the word security when she said someone's sense of security maybe something you threaten someone's sense of security i would substitute the word identity in there yeah for the purposes of this episode definitely because, you know, I basically wanted to throw in what she's saying there into this episode because because identity is everything, mm-hmm. as I hope we are unpacking here. I know we're talking a lot about terms and it's quite a lot of heavy stuff that we're discussing. But, you know, when you're in a disagreement with someone, your identity and their identity are potentially on the line. Yeah. And that can make people act in really emotional ways mm-hmm. and it's just worth noting that in yourself and in whoever you're talking with yeah and it's worth understanding that that comes from a myriad of different places that no one in the conversation is really in control of yeah completely it so resonated with me when she was talking about what's really going on if you're reacting in this way that you're so angrily fighting this point probably doesn't need that much heat behind it what's really going on with you what is it hitting you that is just the secret to good communication isn't it you know yeah. I swear I mean she's she's a trainee therapist right I swear that that is what <laughs> therapy is for I mean yeah. argue with me if you want but that is the base level of communication when you're in a relationship and you get really angry with your partner it's the like classic thing, isn't it? It's never about the dishes. It's not about who no. made the bed. It's not about no, no, no. We all know that, but we forget that that really can apply to conversations that we're having with other human beings as well. And of course, what that means in practical terms depends entirely on who you're talking to. Yeah, obviously. You, know, you can break it down maybe with a family member or a trusted friend or whatever, but 
I don't know if it's, you know, you'd get yourself into pretty heavy territory going to a stranger like, you seem really angry about this. I wonder what's really going on for you, you know, or or sharing with a stranger. You know, you have to, this has to be a real trust level thing. Yeah. But again, the argument that I think we're making throughout this podcast is just having a knowledge that your identity is going to play a role in a disagreement that you have would, in my opinion, make me and has made me, this actually literally has happened to me, that has made me more able to listen more able to empathize, more able to learn, and more able to move forward constructively because I am less worried about standing on my hilltop and defending my tiny castle. Yes. (laughs) I have many tiny castles. (laughs) But you know what? I'm letting people in sometimes. Yeah. And this is another thing that we keep coming back to with basically all of the different elements that we are discussing on this podcast is a knowledge of yourself and a knowledge of the shit that hits you hard and upsets you and triggers you and it doesn't mean that you suddenly find a fix and you're like oh I'm not upset by that thing anymore but you're like oh I understand that feeling that person has said something that goes deeper than the conversation we are having and I understand my reaction to it exactly it's all about understanding it's about understanding yourself Mm-hmm. What you just and you're totally right. We keep coming back to that in this podcast. Knowledge of yourself, understanding yourself, but also it's understanding of things like these terms that we're going into depth to talk about today. Yeah, it's you know if you understand that cancel culture and call out culture, for example, are different, and you understand that your individual identity matters as well as the identity, superficial identity group that others might categorize you yeah. in or that you yourself might identify with or whatever. And if, if you understand what that identity group is in the first place, and then you understand that as an individual, you still have worth. And then you understand that when people say something to you, they might be calling you out rather than canceling you. You know, you're just mm-hmm. gonna, you're just gonna put down your firearms. Yes. Aren't you? Yeah. And you're hopefully gonna be a bit more grounded and therefore maybe more present in the the conversation and that you're having. when you're more present in the conversation, you do more learning, everyone does less shouting, and society moves forward. Society doesn't even, society functions. Yeah. Society doesn't stall. Yeah. Democracy happens. That is what we are advocating for. Yes. We've solved it. <laughs> okay, fine. I think we better wind up. Any hot takeaways before we go? There's no room to learn in council culture, whereas there is room to learn in call out being called out yeah all right cool we might want to be woke but we don't really know what that means and that we don't really know how to practice it we're not really necessarily taking actions or engaging with the deeper ramifications of associating with that term we just know that we should mm. be woke and we don't yes. want to be cancelled <laughs> exactly you know? yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I deleted tweets. I mean, as I say, like, I don't tweet anything inflammatory. But, you know, then I was like, what if this is misread? No, you know, it's far too risky. Far too risky. That was Eggshells. If you liked that episode, then tune into others about how to disagree better by visiting our website or searching for us on your podcast provider. Please like this podcast, give it a five-star review and tell all your friends about it. Support for independent podcasts like ours is vital and we hugely appreciate it. If you fancy getting in touch, 
We're at helloeggshells at gmail.com. We love a chat. Eggshells is hosted by me, Lizzie Bourne, and Hannah Leach. Our sound designer is Andreas Petru, and our music is by Willard Hill and Andreas Petru. Big thank you to Bex Arthur and Marcella Terrable, as well as all the beautiful guests featured on today's podcast. See you soon. <laughs>